Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Portfolio Manager John McLean. John is the Co-Portfolio Manager on Diamond Hill's Corporate Credit and High Yield Strategies, working alongside teammates Bill Zox and Jack Parker. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that John was recently one of four nominees for the 2020 Morningstar Awards for Investing Excellence, Rising Talent category. Per Morningstar, quote, McLean has demonstrated strong credit selection and portfolio management skills, as well as a deep understanding of the market structure, which instills confidence in his ability, end quote. Well said, Morningstar. I couldn't have said it better myself. On today's episode, John and I will review the historic first half of 2020 in the corporate market, from opportunities in the investment grade space to fallen angels to the continuing opportunity in the high yield market. We'll also hear of some colorful insight into the inner workings of the McLean household and choosing between Moana and Frozen. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with John McLean. John, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, let's jump into it and just take a quick uh, overview of the last six months, which have been, you know, by every measurement historic in what has gone on. So why don't you walk us through what you saw during those six months and then kind of how it impacted what you were doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Um, we came into 2020 pretty defensively postured. Uh, yeah, I think we figured we'd see enhanced volatility in the market really driven by the election cycle. I mean, that still has to happen uh, in November and to a lesser degree, uh, valuations were, were fairly tight in the marketplace. And certainly our crystal ball didn't have the one in a hundred year global pandemic with a one in 40 year oil war uh, sprinkled in. Um, and so you see the numbers and really the scoreboard says Q1 was down 13% or so, which was the worst quarter since Q4 of 08. And that was down about 17.5%. And uh, really much of that was driven from the end of February on. And then you go to Q2, uh, which was up about 9.5%. And that was the best quarter we'd seen, uh, you know, in, in a decade as well. Um, but so much happened. And, you know, I have to keep using words like generational, uh, unprecedented, unique, unbelievable, depression. Uh, watching the markets and uh, more importantly, kind of being in it became surreal. Um, you know, we went work from home. And really what that meant, that was try to work, uh, try to keep our kids fed, entertained, away from the staircase. Uh, and trying to get outside at least once a day to remember uh, it actually wasn't Groundhog Day. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we, we kind of peaked out in the back half of February and we started to see some real volatility in the market, or I guess what we thought was real volatility. Uh, we started to see the fixed income ETFs serve as that liquidity fulcrum for the market and their volumes were really sparking, uh, spiking. Uh, you know, that was leading to a number of creations and redemptions and the authorized participants saw the enhanced volatility as an opportunity to make money. However, 
the market was really heading one way. And this enhanced volatility driven, in my opinion, by the ETFs forced the authorized participants to pull away from the market. It was one of those, you fly too close to the sun, you get burned um, scenarios. And, and dealers had to pull back capital too, because banks were focused on their commercial lines of business, uh, providing liquidity via the revolvers, um, you know, I, I remember when Boeing drew down its entire revolver in early March, and uh, you know we were seeing the large ETFs, uh, the HYGs and JNKs, and even the investment grade LQD ETFs breaking down. And I remember, um, you know, Tuesday, March third, uh, we had traveled to Chicago, and uh, you know people were starting to get worried about travel, and uh, we were actually supposed to be in New York. Uh, on the 5th because of a, a Lipper award ceremony. Uh, and, you know, Diamond Hill, like a number of firms, hadn't really come up with a travel policy at the time. And uh, I remember heading into a meeting and, and, and boom, the Fed cuts 50 basis points. And, you know, we were walking around in Chicago in the cold, uh, and you could really feel the nervousness in, in conversations in the meetings that we were having and, and just around the city as well. And from there, that really set everything off. Treasury markets plunged. Uh, the 30-year moved, I think, about 70 basis points from, from March 4th to March 9th. And high-yield spreads widened out by about 200 basis points during that time to points that we thought were pretty attractive levels. And, and then you get to uh, Sunday, uh, March 8th, and Saudi Arabia decides to incite an all-out oil price war. And I remember... IG energy producers became distressed overnight, and our market thought that high-yield energy producers would be out of business uh, because they were staring at the prospects of massive demand, demand destruction and increased supply. And then you go to the next week, and our, gov our governor in, in Ohio started addressing the market that week of March 13th, which was actually the last week we were in the office. And you know, we quickly realized that uh, this was a liquidity market, and we started to uh, cut back risk the back half of that week. We really wanted to make sure that we had a war chest of liquidity. Um, and I'd also point to Bill Zox, my, my co-PM, uh, swapped our, our cash position from prime money market funds to the government money market fund at that time. And we figured the, the strain would make its way to that part of the world, uh, which it did. And, you know, it was really one less thing to, to worry about, especially for, you know, kind of a minuscule pickup in yields. You know, I think that's kind of our generic thought process is when it doesn't cost much to get defensive, get defensive. And then we go into uh, March 15th, and that's, again, another Sunday. The, the Fed decides to cut uh, rates 100 basis points to near zero and, and, and launch quantitative easing. And really in one week, we did so much. That, that week will, will go down in history for sure where, you know, we cut the funds rate to near zero. We relaunched quantitative easing, buying treasuries, mortgages. We pumped up repo offerings. Um, you know, we extended the discount window borrowing. Uh, we launched the commercial paper funding facility, the primary dealer credit facility. Uh, they got brought back. Uh, we reactivated the money market liquidity facility. So a lot of facilities, a lot of the alphabet soup. Uh, and here's why. 
I think we learned going through the financial crisis that banks need to be able to lend money, consumers need to be able to get a mortgage, and companies need to be able to borrow and refinance debt at non-usury rates. And the market was not functioning appropriately at all during the middle of the margin. And to be clear, you know, this was worse than 08, no question. And thankfully, uh, for the world, we have learned from, from 2008 on what type of medicine to deliver and how to administer it. And then you get to the, the week of March 20th, uh, what we're talking about, markets started to dissolve. You saw 30-year rates spike 50 basis points from Monday to Wednesday, and then they collapsed, I think, close to 40 basis points on Friday. These are completely historic moves with credit spreads widening rapidly and risk assets cratering. You know, correlations had simply broken down at that point. And, and I remember we wrote to our investors before the Fed came out on March 22nd. And, and you know, to, to paraphrase a little bit here, you know, panic was an understatement from market participants. And safe to say that most people are on edge. And I highly doubt at this that we are ever going to see a market as fruitful as we were at that point in time because capital was being pulled at rates we had never seen. Wall Street had been told to take no risk. And more importantly, Wall Street was working from home. You know, I think dealers were struggling to figure out the market and st steering a big cruise ship is a lot harder than this tiny speedboat that we think that we have. Um, and it didn't just apply to Wall Street, it applied to the, you know, mega bond funds that rely on, uh, you know, hundreds of individuals kind of conducting what we consider to be a beautiful symphony. Um, the ETFs had simply left the market, you know, putting a liquid wrapper on less liquid underlying assets doesn't change the liquidity profile of those underlying securities. Um, you know, we've, we said we face little to no competition when we talk to Mr. Market. You know, he can't shop our bid and he's got a family to feed. And we said, you know, every time we buy a filet at hamburger meat prices, we, we've got to sell some of our blueberries and, and we like blueberries, but we've got a freezer full of them and uh, we can't usually afford to splurge on filet. And what we meant there was there was a generational opportunity to buy investment grade uh, businesses, very high quality businesses with very good balance sheets at very attractive prices. And in our market, our traditional high yield market, it is important to keep in mind that the market traded at north of a thousand basis point spread, which is a traditional sign of distress. And the five-year implied default rate for the entire high yield market was now north of 40%. And at that point, um, every day felt like an eternity. And we said at that point in time, we wanted to swim upstream, move very high quality because the market was very uncertain. Our ability to predict what was going to happen next uh, was very limited. Um, and we wanted to take permanent impairment of capital off of the table. And from that, you know, middle to end of March till uh, April 9th, we meaningfully added investment grade in both of our portfolios. And then, you know, I had to sit through uh, Powell's speech on, on April 9th, uh, where I think the market was completely caught off guard, uh, where they said, hey, we're going to buy high yield corporate bonds. Uh, you know, we had thought them buying investment grade, the Fed buying investment grade bonds was probably a coin flip. And it certainly caught the market off guard. But, 
you know, it, it made sense. But the fact that we were going to dip down into below investment grade, and not only that, but buy um, ETFs as well, uh, that led to, you know, the high yield ETFs being up close to six and a half percent on one day. And I looked and, you know, it was something like a 10 or 11 standard deviation movement. And, you know, I'm not a statistician by, by trade, but I know that that's a lot of sigmas. Um, and really what that was, was uh, that move relative to the index being up a bit over 3% on the day was, you know, these discounts that were uh, in the NAVs of the ETFs were, were moving to premiums and the premium actually for the high yield ETFs peaked that day because the devil was in the details with the Fed buying ETFs up to only a stated premium. Uh, and like I mentioned, the premium at that time was close to 5%. The biggest discount we had seen uh, was on March 20th, uh, which again was, was pre-Fed. And if you looked at the investment grade, uh, the large investment grade ETF LQD, that flipped from a 5% discount to NAV, which is very wide. Typically, these things are, you know, 10, 20, maybe 30 basis points. If they get out past 50, uh, there's an arbitrage opportunity. So it was that 5% discount to NAV. That's very large on, on March 19th. And uh, it moved to a 5% premium um, on March 25th. And with the Fed in the market, the new issue machine uh, got into full effect. And there was this very short window, I think, of uh, effectively free money at investment grade. Um, we saw March, April, May, and June as the four largest months of uh, monthly issuance in the investment grade market. So obviously, the second quarter was um, the busiest on record uh, for investment grade by an order of magnitude. And by the end of March, we saw the first uh, post-COVID high yield new issue, which was Yum Brands. Uh, and that, as I mentioned, came at the, the end of March. And then you got to the point where you saw these mega cap fallen angels coming into the high yield market. And there was a lot of worry about crowding out, uh, as I think there always is. But that supply was really well digested. And now, you know, three of our largest 10 issuers in the index are Ford, Kraft, uh, and Oxy. And I think it's important for, for people to realize that the high yield index constituents has changed rather drastically uh, given the new fallen angel supply. Um, and, and you can think of sectors like airlines uh, and cruise lines that, that fall under the leisure part of the market. They've gone from really de minimis parts of, of the high yield market to be really important parts of the market. And when you talk about high yield, you have to talk about energy. And the energy part of the market had shrunk to below 10% of the index because of, uh, you know, very poor performance of, of the market constituents. But with Oxy and um, Continental Resources and Western Midstream and a number of other uh, large issuers uh, getting downgraded back into high yield, uh, that market's back up to uh, almost 13% of the market. And, you know, I think we saw a rapid move higher in prices because you had uh, the Fed involved and you had cheap valuations. Um, and I think it was fairly startling, uh, the move back up just as, as, as quick as the move down. And now, you know, we're, we're in this 
area where it's, well, did I miss this opportunity in the market? And I don't think, I think the answer is no. Um, I think that, uh, you know, more, the most important thing to keep in mind is, is not where uh, we are today versus where we were three months ago. It is where we are today versus where we're going to go in the next several years. And I think that, you know, we've learned these lessons from the global financial crisis. Um, the Fed, the government is going to step in and make sure that companies uh, that were good businesses before COVID are able to survive. And um, we're in a world with very low yields now, with more than 90% of um, risk-free rates in developed economies trading below 1%. And we're seeing, you know, your traditional bond proxies, things like MLPs and REITs, they're, they're certainly very impacted by this and dividends are getting cut. So where do you go for income? And you've got an asset class in high yields uh, that, you know, is trading around 600 spread, um, which is historically a bit wide of, of its average. And the double B part of the market, uh, you know, is pretty attractive and pretty large at this point too, because of the fallen angels, perversely, the index actually de-risks the percentage of double B's also moved up very high, uh, uh, since, uh, the beginning of COVID. So, um, I think there are, you know, pretty decent businesses that uh, are big enough uh, to survive. Um, and when we get back to a more no normalized type of environment, I think there's going to be a real strong demand for income. And there's not a lot of places that you're going to be able to find it. So, you know, we continue to see uh, a lot of opportunity in the marketplace. Um, it's certainly not as attractive as it was three months ago. Um, on an absolute basis, but relative to other risk assets, we, we still really uh, like the market and um, we still see a lot of opportunities. So thanks for that, John. That was, that was great. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit and look at different parts of what you were talking about. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to get into um, was, as you mentioned, the investment grade trade. So moving into investment grade, extending duration, what was the opportunity there? Um, and how were you able to take advantage of that uh, in, you know, looking at that market, and, and we'll talk about fallen angels in a little bit, but just looking at the investment grade market and some of that, as you've mentioned, and as Bill Zox has, has referred to uh, many times as this generational opportunity. So maybe a little bit more detail on what you were seeing there and how you were able to uh, take advantage of that. Yeah, so, um you know, pre-COVID, uh, double Bs were extremely tight and, and for points in time trading below 200 spread, as an example. And, uh, you know, what we saw was uh, a number of very high quality issuers coming to the market uh, in investment grade at spreads in the 300s and sometimes 400s and sometimes even in the 500s. So these are spread levels more um, in line with double Bs and, and somewhat single Bs only a month or two prior. And certainly a lot had changed, but where we sit in the capital stack above equity, um, you know, I don't think much had changed in terms of the default expectations of these businesses. And what we said was uh, a company that was trading at 100 spread pre-COVID uh, now trading at 350 or 400 spread, that's really attractive. 
Um, and at this point in time, our view, we're not macro driven, but we certainly didn't see interest rates going meaningfully higher in the short or intermediate time frame. Uh, I think we know that we've got to keep rates relatively low um, to allow the economy to heal from here. And so what you could do was take investment grade spreads that looked more like high yields and add or multiply price appreciation component of this by duration. And there were opportunities to buy long duration, um, high quality businesses, you know, names that we thought about, we said, okay, let's think about who the winners are going to be longer term structurally. And examples of this, if you, if you think of retail as being particularly challenged, well, off-price uh, retail is, is certainly a winner. Companies like Dollar General, but more importantly, names like TJ Maxx or Ross Stores, uh, we felt like we're in a position to longer term uh, grow the intrinsic value of their businesses, take market share, um, and we could buy these companies at high yield types of, of spreads. Um, you look at a company like Cisco, uh, the largest food distributor. Um, again, that was uh, you know a company that uh, their longer 30-year um, bonds were trading in the hundreds, low 100 spread pre-COVID, and they brought a new issue at uh, from the 30-year perspective at I believe 575 spread. Um, so it was extremely attractive um, because you know everybody was focused on the short term. Um, and market liquidity and those types of dynamics, whereas we could take a longer, longer term view. Um, and so, yeah, we saw, you know, a number of very, very high quality businesses with very strong balance sheets. And even as we kind of stressed, um, stressed these businesses through a very challenging 2020, they were still cash flowing in our models. And, um, you know, the prospects of not cash flowing for more than a year were, were taken away. And you were able to, uh, these businesses were able to um, fortify their balance sheets and, and shore up their liquidity by accessing the market. So that took the um, liquidity squeeze off of the table for these businesses. Um, and so we felt like uh, there, were, there were a lot of opportunities to have equity-like returns with investment-grade risk, which we rarely see. So you've mentioned it uh, earlier the fallen angel aspect of, of all of this and what's going on. And we've seen a record amount for, for the time period, record amount of, of downgrades into below investment grade. Um, what, what is it about that part of the market that's attractive relative to other areas that you're looking at? Is it the longer term prospect? Is it the value that you're getting immediately? What is it about the fallen angels uh, that really is, is attractive? I think there's a number of dynamics. One is that, uh, you know, again, market participants are usually focused on a shorter window, shorter time horizon than we are. And certainly there can be short-term dislocations to a business that, uh, you know, stress uh, the, the credit metrics of a company. But typically, uh, investment-grade companies that migrate to high yield, these fallen angels, are larger businesses um, you know, they can sell off assets, they can cut dividends or share buybacks. There's a lot of levers for these businesses to pull to strengthen the balance sheets. And most companies that are traditional investment grade companies don't want to stay in high yield. So it priority becomes uh, improving their balance sheet. And really, so management 
uh, is focused on bondholders as opposed to shareholders because they understand that once they get their balance sheet in line, they will command a higher PE multiple or trade at a higher, uh, you know, price to tangible book or, or whatever that may be. Um, so you're buying bigger businesses that have a lot of levers to pull. Um, and uh, it becomes a part of the market that uh, is somewhat uh, technically driven as well, where uh, investment grade, uh, managers are sellers, but not necessarily for sellers. That dynamic is, is uh, a little bit overblown, I think, but there's no investment grade buyers. Um, and certainly there are some sellers and the investment grade market is much larger than, than the high yield market. And for high yield participants, uh, they typically wait until uh, an entity enters the index or is getting very close to entering the index. Um, you also have kind of a structural issue where um, a lot of managers have dedicated investment grade teams and dedicated high yield teams. And so there has to be this knowledge transfer of a business from one analyst to another, whereas we have uh, centralized research. And, and so there's no uh, loss of knowledge uh, in that transfer process. And this time was particularly interesting because of the whole work from home situation where most uh, teams were kind of spread across uh, the country, if not the globe. So. Uh, from, our, from our standpoint, having one point of contact or a couple of points of contact on the analyst side was uh, very helpful uh, in getting up to speed faster than our competition. And, you know, again, um, we always talk about standing out as opposed to fitting in. It was, uh, you know, we're, we're not afraid to look materially different than our index. And, uh, you know, we, we took that opportunity and I think it's, it, it's done very well for us. And, when you look at the market now, too, um, I think there's a lot of attractive opportunities in the new issue market, in the low triple B part of the market, because, um, again, investment grade managers are kind of hesitant to add more triple B exposure because most of them are already overweight. Whereas for us, um, you know, again, we're going to go where we, we see value. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's one of these things where anytime we can find a part of the market where uh, there's not a lot of eyes paying attention to things um, and there can be some supply and demand imbalances, uh, we, we see uh, the opportunity to find value. So another thing that you, that you had mentioned and, and we can talk about, um, as soon as we came home is when things got really, really hairy in the market. Uh, and uh, I know that, you know, you've got, you've got kids at home and, and your wife works. So it was busy all around in the McLean household. Um, and we were exchanging messages throughout that time period, talking on the phone. What was it like? I mean, obviously you've never seen anything like this before, the type of, of opportunity, the type of volatility, but what was it like on a day-to-day -day basis, just trying to get, everything done and, and looking at all the opportunities and, and getting the portfolio where you wanted to get it. Uh, yeah, it was a lot. And uh, I mean, I think that really goes to, you know, the overall uh, team effort. Um, I think the fact that uh, our group had worked together very closely, sat side by side for a number of years, you know, Bill and myself, uh, as well as Jack Parker, um, you know, navigating a small team was, was pretty easy from, from that standpoint. And it was really, uh, you know, this all hands on deck in terms of uh, speaking with the analyst team and, um, you know, people made themselves available off market hours, which was, uh, you know, also fantastic. I mean, there were a number of nights where it's 
kids go down at 7, 7.30, put them to bed, get on the phone, start talking to uh, analysts at 8 or 9 o'clock at night uh, and working through ideas because the, the other part of it that we kind of touched upon was the new issue market was so, um, so fruitful um, that there were a lot of new opportunities on a daily basis and names that, uh, you know, I had not uh, spent much time on, but thankfully, uh, you know, our analysts were very much up to speed on things. And uh, there were, there was a lot of cross ownership between names that we own in our large cap strategy uh, and, and in high yield and uh, corporate credit, which typically is not the case. So um, it was nice to be able to have that uh, knowledge network to be able to quickly tap into. But uh you know, there were certainly a number of times where it was, uh, you know, trying to uh, engage in a trade or have a conversation with a with a client or a prospect. And, um, you know, my daughters come running over and they want to watch Moana or uh, Frozen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there were a lot of Zoom calls done by audio only um, because uh, my daughters were sitting in my lap or um, you know, uh, the dog was running around the house. I mean, it was, you know, it was crazy. And I think it really got to this whole, um, prioritization, right. Um, you know, I think, uh, you only have so much time in the day. Um, you know, we only have so much, uh, that we can do. Uh, so it was what matters, what do we need to accomplish, uh, in this moment, in this day, um, but not losing sight of kind of longer term, um, you know, what were our thoughts on the marketplace and where were we seeing value? But, uh, you know, it was crazy. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I'm not the only person and I think a lot of people struggled with kind of that balance of, uh, you know, getting your job done and making sure that, uh, your kids were safe and, uh, healthy and, uh, you know, not losing their minds either. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think we learned a lot um, and, I'm, you know, I'm happy that uh, everybody at the firm, uh, not just in the um, manufacturing of, of, you know, kind of the portfolios, but uh, everybody really pitched in from sales and marketing and ops and, um, uh, you know, it was a total team effort for, for uh, getting us to, to right the ship uh, and get us moving in the right direction. So, John, I want to thank you for your time. I'll, I'll wrap it up with just one more question. Um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about um, spreads and widened out in the high yield market to almost 1100. They've now come back to where they're right around 600. Uh, what do you say to, to those uh, clients, to investors that think that, well, oh, I've missed, I've missed the boat because high yield is more of a tactical um, allocation. Now I know that, you know, when I talk with Bill and with you that we look at high yield more as that gateway between equity and a, and a core fixed income. So what do you say to those clients that, that continue to look at high yield as tactical that maybe they should start thinking about it as more strategic? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think, you know, I go back to where, where we sit in the capital structure, um, which is above equity and maintaining kind of a higher quality bias uh, in our portfolios. Uh, you know, I think you know, the vast majority of the names that we own are going to be cash flow positive uh, this year and have a number of hard assets that they can monetize. Um, and, you know, it goes back to that, uh, where are you going to get income in the market on a go forward basis when, um, you know, your traditional fixed income uh, yields one to 2% if you're lucky and uh, at some points is negative and, 
those bond proxies, uh, those dividends are, are consistently under pressure. I mean, you know, this is um, Wednesday, July 15th, and Wells Fargo just uh, cut their dividend again. Um, so, you know, I think those dividends, uh, you know, are, are something to really pay attention to for investors, and I'm not sure how sacred they are uh, for a number of, number of businesses right now. And, um, you know, again, when we look at longer-term return opportunities, not just in the next three, six months, a year, but over the next three to five years, uh, starting at 600 spread is an attractive entry point into the asset class, and particularly uh, because the bulk of that spread is really coming from the double B part of the market, which historically, uh, you know, you have to go back to, I think, 2002 for the last time the double B's defaulted at more than 1%. So, it's not your uh, Michael Milken, uh, junk bond, double Bs. Uh, the, the, the double Bs today are uh, bigger businesses, more structurally sound. Uh, I think the asset class is uh, better understood from that perspective. But, you know, high yields, uh, a very attractive asset class, particularly if you have a longer term view um, over the next three to five years with uh, 600 basis points of spread as your starting point. Great. Well, John McLean, Portfolio Manager on the Diamond Hill Corporate Credit and High Yield Strategies. I want to thank you for your time. I would, uh, I'd go with Moana over Frozen uh, every time, but it uh, sounds like your daughter's like both. But I want to thank you for joining me. I know you've been pretty busy, so uh, thanks and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks, Doug. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.